I'd like to start out by reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16, and I'll read verses 16 and 17. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I want to share with you some principles concerning the spirit and the soul and to introduce to you the biblical concept of the spirit, the soul, and the body as it pertains to the threefold makeup of man. I think this will be helpful to you for a number of reasons, but I start here in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, just to illustrate something that, if you think about it, I think you will agree. And the, the point is this. When you became a Christian, when you gave your, your life to the Lord, when you were in Christ, as the, as the Scripture puts it, when we were made one with Him, well, that happened at the moment that we were born again. But what exactly happened? It says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And so I would ask you, where did that new creation take place? I think most people will agree that the new creation that Scripture talks about is not talking about something that is visible with the physical eye. And to underscore that, Paul says that from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't regard anyone according to the physical appearance. Because he says that when you are in Christ... The flesh is not as important anymore. And actually, this new creation that Scripture talks about is not happening in the flesh. Meaning, when you become a Christian, when you become a disciple of Jesus, when you give your, your heart to the Lord, when you become born again, when you are saved, what changes? Well, something happens, something changes and you become a new creation, but outwardly, according to the flesh, Paul says, nothing has changed. Where is this change happening? Where is this new creation taking place? It's taking place in a part of us that is unseen. It is not in the flesh. It is not visible to the naked eye. It is not according to outward appearance that we become a new creation. So to put it very simply and very plainly, when you begin to follow the Lord, you give your life to him, you, you are saved, you are born again, your physical appearance is not changed in, insofar as if you are uh, blonde hair and blue-eyed when you come to the Lord, your physical appearance is not going to change a bit. Now, some people may be healed when they come to the Lord. That would be different, but... What I'm referring to is, where is this new creation taking place? It's not taking place in the flesh. Paul says we don't judge or, or look at anyone according to the flesh anymore. The only thing that counts is the new creation that's happening where? Not outwardly, but inwardly. So the purpose of this teaching is to help you to understand how you are created, how you were made. And the first point that we want to make uh, at the outset, is that there is an inner man and there is an outward man. There is the inward, invisible, that we cannot see, and then there is the outward, the physical, or as Scripture refers to, the flesh. So, in this teaching, we want to introduce you to this concept of the threefold makeup of man. Um, three parts of man. And help you to understand the difference between these different parts of mankind. That God created you with 
a very wonderfully complex makeup that we can distinguish and compartmentalize, if you will, into three areas. Two of them are invisible and hidden, and one of them is outward and easily seen. Now, it's important that we understand the difference between the inner man and the outward man. So this is going to be an introductory teaching for many of you who have uh, never really given much thought to how you were created. For others, it will be a good refresher, but we're going to start with a very basic understanding and then build some principles there. So regardless of whether this is a new subject to you or if it is something um, that you are fairly familiar with, we can all benefit by rehearsing to ourselves over and over again, how does scripture view us as individuals? Because that will help us to understand, if we understand how we are created, we can better cooperate with how we were intended to function. Specifically, if we understand the difference between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit, and we understand how, how each functions, and we understand how to cooperate with the functioning of the spirit and the soul and the body, then we will begin to experience something that Scripture calls the, the liberty of the children of God, the liberty of walking in the spirit and not walking in the flesh. And I want to start right from the beginning by saying this is important because religion lies in the realm of the flesh. It lies in the realm of the soul. This is where religion lies. Now, you've heard the expression, and maybe you would describe yourself as someone who is spiritual, not religious. Well, in this teaching, we're going to examine what is the difference between spirituality and religiosity. What is the difference between walking in the spirit and walking in the flesh? And why is it important? And how can we cooperate with that? Religion lies in the realm of the flesh, in the realm of the soul, in the realm of the emotion, in the realm of logic. So just because you are religious, it doesn't mean that you are spiritual. And Jesus described this, didn't he? When in John chapter 4, he spoke with a woman there who was at the well to draw water, and they get into this conversation. And you'll recall in John chapter 4, she asked Jesus a religious question about where should we worship. Um, and this was a, a woman of Samaria. So she said, our, our ancestors worshiped here on this mountain, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the only place to worship. So she came to Jesus with a religious question, and the question is, where should, I, where should we go to perform the religious act of worship. Well, Jesus said to her, you worship what you know not. We know what we worship because salvation is of the Jews. Nevertheless, he says, it's neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem that you worship the Father because the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So right away we see again, here is a difference that Scripture delineates and that the Lord Jesus delineates between religion and spirituality, between the religious offering up of worship to God versus the spirit and truth offering of worship to God. So there is a difference. If you're not aware of the difference, then you could very well be religious offering up to the Lord what you think is acceptable and pleasing to him and, and find out that actually you are in the flesh the whole time. Cain and Abel is a good example of two brothers who both worshiped God. They both brought an offering to the Lord. It says that Cain brought the first fruits of his crops, of his produce, but Abel brought uh, a, a living sacrifice or, or an animal sacrifice, the flesh and the blood of, of, a, of a lamb. And it says that the Lord was 
pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but with Cain's sacrifice he was not pleased, and he accepted Abel's worship and rejected Cain's worship. And I think for a lot of people, they have a hard time wrapping their brain around the fact that God would reject someone's worship. That God would ever say to someone, no, that's unacceptable to me. But if we read scripture, we see that certain sacrifices are acceptable to the Lord. Certain sacrifices are pleasing to him. And on the other hand, if something is pleasing to the Lord, then something must, of course, also be not pleasing to him. And so Cain represented something that was not pleasing to the Lord. We see later in the attitude that uh, Cain displayed that something was not right in his heart. So from the very beginning, God has always looked upon the heart. And it's the heart that is at the, that is at the center of the makeup of mankind. So the flesh has to do with the outward appearance, whereas God told Samuel, you judge by the outward opinion or, or the outward appearance, but I judge according to the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So God has always, from the beginning, looked to the heart of man, looked to the inward, looked to the hidden. And so it's, it's, quite, um, it's quite obvious that when Scripture in the New Testament begins to talk about the new creation, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Where does that new creation takes, take place? It has to take place in the heart of man. That's where the life of God comes to, to indwell and to save and to transform. It's from the inside out. Well, religion works from the outside in. It's focused on behavior. It's focused on ritual. It's focused on the outward appearance of things. And that's why... Uh, Jesus looked at the Pharisees and his judgment of them is that you outwardly appear righteous to others, but you are like whitewashed tombs. Inwardly, you are full of dead men's bones. Again, we see there is a difference between what we see on the outside and what we really are on the inside. So it's very possible, in fact, it's quite likely that we could draw near to God outwardly. That is, we could go to church, we could sing hymns, we could quote scripture, we could read the Bible, we could go through the motions, and many people do, go through the motions of drawing near to God with our mouth, and yet Jesus says, your hearts are far away from me. And he quoted Isaiah with that. You draw near to me with your mouth and honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far removed from me. So what's the point? The point is that we have two possibilities as disciples of Jesus, as born-again believers, two, two potential paths that we could take. We can walk in the flesh, or we can walk in the spirit. We can walk in the flesh, we can go through the motions of worshiping God, go through the motions of following Jesus, go through the motions of praise and worship, go through the motions of studying scripture or reading scripture or quoting scripture, and we can be in the flesh the whole time. Or we can learn to walk in the spirit, and Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, if we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So what's happening is, a lot of Christians, they don't, they don't know how to walk in the Spirit, and so they're trying to correct their flesh and fix their flesh, but they're in the flesh the whole time. So Jesus explains in John 3, that which is of the flesh is flesh. In other words, whatever is coming forth from the flesh is fleshly. So you can't be in the flesh and work your way into the Spirit. You can't correct a fleshly problem with a fleshly solution. So there is a spiritual realm that we can live out of, that we can walk in, and that is the only way that we can overcome the lusts of the flesh. 
the deeds of the flesh. It's the only way that we can overcome the religiosity of how we've been trained in religion. It's the only way that we can overcome the ritualistic, legalistic mindset that we tend to adopt. It's the only way that we can be delivered from hypocrisy. We don't want to be in the position of Cain where we go through the motions of worshiping God and yet our sacrifice to God, our worship to God is unacceptable to him. So two possibilities. We can walk in the flesh or we can walk in the spirit. Now, why is this teaching on spirit and soul so important? Why is it important? We've already said number one. I'll give you five reasons, but we've said number one. The Father seeks spirit and truth worshipers. Spirit and truth worshipers. And in order to worship God in the spirit, you have to understand that you are a spirit. You have a soul and you live in a body. You've got to understand the difference between what is spiritual and what is fleshly, what is spiritual and what is soulish. So that you can give to God the worship and the praise and the honor and the obedience to God that is pleasing to him. So we want to please the Lord. That's part of the new creation, by the way. When we talk about pleasing the Lord, we're not talking about the legalistic, ritualistic, hypocritical methodology of trying to measure up in the eyes of man. Remember, Paul says we're not going to judge according to the flesh anymore because if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. So this new creation gives you now, for the first time, the potential to really walk in the Spirit and worship God in spirit and in truth. And the Father, it says, is seeking that worship. He is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So it's important you can't worship God in spirit and in truth if you don't know the difference between what is spiritual and what is fleshly. So looking at how we are created, spirit and soul and body, will help us to better discern and distinguish what God is looking for so that we can cooperate with how we have been made and how we are created. Secondly, this teaching is important because the deeper things of the Spirit are only revealed to those who are spiritual. God wishes to reveal and to illuminate and to share great revelation, great wisdom, it says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But here's the thing. You can only experience those deeper things of the Spirit, the deeper truths, if you are, in fact, spiritual because the Father and the Spirit of God only reveal spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. We'll define and, and help you to understand what real spirituality is. I can tell you right now, it's not spiritual in the sense that the world defines spiritual. That's actually soulish as the world defines it. You know, some people say, well, I'm spiritual. I just float around on the clouds and I'm just really in touch with myself and I'm at peace and I chant and I breathe deeply and I'm just a real spiritual person. Well, that's the world's definition of what it means to be spiritual. We are not interested in how the world defines spirituality. The only thing we are interested in is how does Scripture define a spirit-filled person? What does it mean from a scriptural standpoint to be spiritual and to walk in the spirit as opposed to walking in the flesh? So don't be confused or misled because of what someone out in the world or someone without understanding has said, oh, I'm spiritual. And a lot of people who say, I'm spiritual, not religious, they don't really understand what spirituality is either. So 
what we are interested in in this teaching is establishing what true spirituality is. Because the Father is not going to reveal the deeper things of the Spirit unless we are indeed spiritual. That's established in 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and 3. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural man, the fleshly man, and in that realm is the religious man or woman, cannot receive the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually discerned. So if you want to understand the deeper truths, the deeper wisdom that is available to you in Christ, it's imperative that you and I walk in the Spirit so that we can go into the depths and the heights of of the Lord Jesus and understand all that he wants to share with us. You know, in John 15 or 16, John 14, 15, and 16 is the last words of Jesus to his disciples before he went to the cross. And he said, you know, there's much that I want to share with you, much wisdom, much revelation that I want to impart to you, he was saying, but you're not able to handle it. You can't bear it right now. Why? Because they weren't spiritual. They were still fleshly. They were still in the realm of the natural man. They were in the realm where they couldn't discern the things of the Spirit. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying for the most part. And he says, you just can't absorb all the things that I want to share with you right now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will lead you into all truth and he will take of mine and reveal it to you. And so that was, that is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who renders us spiritual, able to receive and discern the things of the Spirit of God and lead us into all truth concerning Jesus. Thirdly, this teaching is important because if we ever want to get free from an up and down existence, a life of feeling, then we're going to have to understand the difference between spirit and soul and body so that we can be transformed and liberated and free from this up and down existence of living according to our feelings. If I feel good this morning, I'm on top of the world and I can pray, study the word, witness, and be a powerful testimony for Jesus. But if I wake up in the morning and I feel bad or I feel depressed or I feel under the weather or whatever the case may be, then all of a sudden uh, I start questioning my salvation. I wonder if the Lord loves me at all. I, I think maybe I've sinned terribly. And uh, so... Our feelings are changed. Uh, they're changeable. They're up and down. They're all over the place. Our feelings, our emotions change, not just on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. So if you're living according to your feelings, then you are, you are living a life that is unstable. It's not fun. It's not joyful. There's a difference. And maybe you've discovered this. There is a joy and a peace that passes understanding. It's beyond the feeling. It's beyond the emotion. But it's something that, it, that transcends feeling and emotion. There's a joy and a peace that transcends whatever circumstance you're in. And that's where I want to be. Because I can't control my circumstances. You can't control your circumstances, but you can control how you respond to them. And how you respond to them depends upon whether or not you are living a life of feeling or a life of faith. And a life of faith is a life of following after the Spirit. To be spiritual as opposed to carnal. To be spiritual as opposed to natural. To be spiritual as opposed to fleshly. So to be to be free from your feelings. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If you didn't have to live your life based on how you felt. But you could live a life of faith. And you could live a life of principle. And you could live a life of following after the Spirit. And not yielding to the feelings. You'll never get rid of the feelings. But you don't have to be ruled by your feelings. Many of you right now. You are ruled by your feelings. If you feel like you've got the victory. You believe you have the victory. If you feel defeated. Then you live as if you are defeated. And it becomes a self-fulfilling 
prophecy. We would like to transcend feeling altogether, transcend emotion, transcend the circumstances that trigger those emotions and those feelings in you, and instead learn to walk in the Spirit. And if I could give you an analogy, it's, it's just, like, uh, just like being above the storm. It's not even peace in the midst of the storm. It's being above the storm, being able to look down on the storm raging below, and yet you are, you are in the clear, blue, crystal clear, uh, calm, serenity, a place of ascended, of being ascended and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Spiritually speaking, that's a good analogy. But that is what it means to walk in the Spirit and not live according to feelings. So to understand how the spirit works and how the soul works and how the body works is the first step to deliverance from a life of emotion, a life that's up and down and all over the place depending on what's going on. I need uh, something that will help me to be consistent and victorious and overcoming regardless of feeling whether I feel like it or not, uh, whether circumstances are going my way or not, but I, that I can walk in the Spirit and still have the confidence that greater is he, is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So that's one of the benefits of understanding spirit, soul, and body. A fourth reason why this is important, and immediately I think you're going to appreciate this, is if we want to avoid deception and counterfeit, we have to be able to distinguish between spirit, soul, and body. So many people are deceived and they're led astray because they don't know how to tell the difference between something that is spiritual from the Spirit of God and something that is soulish, something that is just from the spirit of man, from the flesh of man, man's carnal idea, man's religious doctrine or religious experience or some kind of feeling in their emotion, some kind of feeling that they would say is spiritual, some manifestation that they claim is a manifestation of the Spirit of God, and yet it behaves in a way that is according to the flesh. And so many people are so easily deceived by these counterfeit uh, movements and these uh, these manifestations. Why? Simply because they haven't learned, first of all, how to walk in the Spirit. And because they haven't learned how to walk in the Spirit, they haven't learned to distinguish the difference, to tell the difference, to exercise discernment. And that's what discernment really is. It's the ability to tell the difference, to distinguish, to discriminate. In this context, discrimination is very important. We need to be able to discriminate between what is spiritual and from the Lord and prompted by the Holy Spirit, something that will lead us to Christ versus something that is prompted by the vanity of man, the imaginations of man, the counterfeit of man, whether the intention is good or bad or indifferent, whether they're doing it in ignorance or whether they are doing it to mislead and deceive on purpose really makes no difference. That which is of the flesh is flesh. So you, some people will say, well, you just don't know their heart. Their heart's in the right place. That's not what I'm concerned about. The only thing I'm concerned about from a spiritual discernment perspective is, is this prompted by the Holy Spirit? Is this coming from the Holy Spirit? Or is this coming from someplace else? If it's coming from someplace else, it's irrelevant to me, the motivation, the intention, the good-heartedness of the, of the person involved. I'm sure you can be very honest um, and, and think that you're going on the right path, but that's what everybody thinks. <laughs> I, I don't think there's anyone, very few, I think, intentionally want to be misled and want to mislead others. For the most part, it's people who really think that they are doing God a favor and doing everyone else a favor by sharing their thoughts, sharing their so-called prophecies, sharing their teachings, and they're, they're in the realm of the soul, not in the realm of the spirit. And so they're just like Cain, offering up something to the Lord, offering up something to the body of Christ and to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And they think what they're doing is acceptable and is approved by God. And actually, mm, no, it's not. But they never stop to consider it 
Why? Because they're in the flesh. They're in the realm of the soul. And that's where the realm of religion lies. So if you want to be able to discern the difference between what is counterfeit and what is genuine, what is, um, what is of the flesh versus what is of the spirit, what is from man? Is it coming from man? Is it coming from the devil? Or is it coming from the Lord? How do you know the difference? Well, a lot of people, I think, are looking for some kind of a checklist or something to be able to go down and, and they try to use their mind to figure it out. And that's the flesh working as well. It has nothing to do with being able to dissect a teaching, look up a few words and be able to determine with your intelligence if this sounds right or if this sounds wrong. That's in the realm of the soul also. Why is that important? Well, if, it's, if, you're, if you can only discriminate and discern by exercising your mind, then it means that only smart people, only intelligent people can avoid being misled. And we know very well that sometimes it is the smartest, most intelligent people that go the wrong way and, and are easily led astray when it comes to spiritual things or things that purport to be spiritual. And so it's not a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter of, of IQ. It's not a matter of being smart or able to study better than someone else. It's a question of spiritual discernment. And that spiritual discernment is only available to those who understand the difference between what is spiritual, what is soulish, what is in the realm of God, and what is in the realm of everything else. So to avoid deception and counterfeit, that's a big benefit. I think number five, the fifth benefit, is so we can receive, learn how to receive clear direction and guidance. Often what we think we are being led to do is really just our own imagination. We think about something that we want to do. We imagine that God is leading us. We pray that God will bless it, and then we go out to do it in our own strength when really we don't have often the foggiest clue about what God wants because we're in the flesh, we're in the soul. When we, we think that God is going to give us a thought or he's going to give us a dream or he's going to give us some kind of a manifestation that's going to indicate to us which way we're to go. And so... People are looking for the methodology. How can I get direction? How can I get guidance? How can I know which way I'm to go? And how can I get the, the, make the right decision here and discern the will of God for my life? And these are all very good questions. The challenge is trying to answer those questions without really exploring the root cause of why is it that we're not able to clearly understand the way that we should go. Why is it such a difficult thing for us to discern and get clear direction? Why is it such a hard time to actually hear the voice of God or sense the leading of the Holy Spirit? Why is it so difficult? It's not so much the difficulty of trying to get clear guidance or clear direction. It's an issue of we don't understand how we have been made. We don't understand spirit and soul. And so we are listening with our soul when God is speaking to us in our spirit. Now, let me ask you a question. Imagine that. You're listening with your soul, your soulish ears, so to speak, expecting God to speak to you in your soul. And yet God, the whole time, is speaking to you, attempting to communicate with you in your spirit. Now, first of all, if you don't know that you have a spirit, wouldn't that be a problem? Would you be able to get guidance and direction or anything else from the Lord? Could you receive anything from the Lord if he offers it to you through your spirit, but you're listening and expecting to receive through your soul? Well, there's a lack of communication there. It's not a problem on God's end. He's trying to give. He's trying to pour out. He wants to lead you into all truth. He wants to lead you and guide you. Problem is we are tuned in to the wrong channel. He's on the, the spiritual wavelength and you're still in the soul. So the solution is not to try and figure out 
how to get direction, how to get guidance. The solution is not how to figure out how to discern and detect what is true and what is false as far as discernment goes. The answer is walk in the Spirit. If you are in the Spirit, you'll be led by the Spirit. You'll receive clear direction and guidance, and you won't be confused. You won't be misled. You won't go down the wrong road. So it's in our spirit that God communicates with us. It's in our spirit that we discern. And so we must understand the difference between spirit and soul if we want to be able to receive the clear direction and guidance that God wants to give us as we live our life for the glory of God in this earth. So I've used some terms here. I've talked about spiritual, I've talked about soulish or soul, I've talked about natural, I've talked about the fleshly. Let's go ahead and establish and define the threefold makeup of man. And when I say man, of course, I'm also including uh, the ladies, uh, but I'm, I'm talking about how mankind is constructed how men and women have been fashioned and created and molded by God so that we can better understand how the different parts of us work together. Um, if, so if, 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 we can, if we can look at it from a scriptural perspective, it helps to fill in a lot of the blanks that psychology can't answer that just looking at things from a natural or a worldly standpoint or a carnal, fleshly point of view, it creates problems and challenges that the world can't answer because they don't go far enough. So typically, the way the world looks at uh, the makeup of man, the, they look at, at men as mankind as two parts. There's the physical body and then there's the mind. Some would say the soul, some would say the psyche, but this is what psychology is based on. Psychology is based on the thoughts and the feelings and the decisions, what's going on in the invisible parts of you, whereas physiology has to do with the physical parts, the, the, the body and how the body functions, uh, your health, and this is where the, the medical arts come into practice and sciences. So this is how the world deals with things. It's either something in your body, physiological, or something in your head. Uh, mental health or, or, psycho or psychologists or um, uh, psychology, psychiatry is all based on what's going on in your brain, in your thoughts, in your mind. Of course, we can't see that. We can only, uh, we can only make deductions and we can ask questions and this is what therapy is based on it's based on getting you to a place where you can open up and talk about your feelings and then someone can try and help you work through these feelings and these emotions and these thoughts that's going through your mind so this is what the world has to offer it offers medical help for physical problems it offers psychological help for the areas of the mind the mental health but that can only go so far. And scripture actually provides for us a third level of existence and teaches that man is not just made up of two parts, the mind and the body, but man actually is consistent of three parts. And those parts are spirit, soul, and body. So we're going to communicate three big ideas in this teaching. The first big idea is you are a spirit. You have a soul and you live in a body. You are a spirit. Remember, 
2 Corinthians 5.17, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. What changes when you are, are first saved, when you first come to the Lord? What changes? Your physical body probably does not change a whole lot. You may experience a healing or something, but that, that's, that's uh, different from what I'm discussing right now. The new creation isn't happening in your body. You can't look at someone outwardly and be able to see the new creation. Well, what about inwardly? Well, let's look at it. Does your mind change when you are born again? Now, it's possible that you could experience thoughts of joy. You could experience thoughts of peace. But Scripture teaches us that we must be transformed, and we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. It doesn't say that this new creation in Christ gives us a new mind. It doesn't say that all of a sudden our thoughts are pure. In fact, it's quite a shock to some people when they come to the Lord and they have that encounter and that experience uh, with Christ. And amazingly, they find that some of the old thoughts, some of the old temptations, some of the old fears, some of the old doubts and worries still come back into their mind. And this should illustrate that this new creation that's happened, it's happened on a level that is deeper than my physical body. I don't all of a sudden grow six inches just because I'm, I became a Christian. The color of my hair doesn't change. Um, I, I, don't, I don't suddenly or necessarily become uh, any different in my physical appearance. Also, my mind and my thoughts don't automatically become transformed. That's not where the new creation is taking place. Actually, uh, there's some work that needs to be done to renew my mind, to, to fill my mind with, with things that are good and holy and just and pure and holy and to, to deliberately direct my mind to think on these things. That's all in the realm of the mind. It doesn't happen automatically. So the fact that there's this struggle that still is taking place in people who are genuinely saved and they genuinely know the Lord demonstrates that whatever happened at the moment that we received the Lord Jesus, that new creation, it didn't happen in my body, it didn't happen in my mind, although I may enjoy some, some benefit of having more peace or more joy, more tranquil thoughts, or I may even experience um, healing in my body. But that's not the new creation. So where did this new creation take place? Scripture teaches that, and we'll learn in this, in this program, the new creation took place in your spirit. Well, that's because you are a spirit. What is the part of you that will live forever, the indestructible part of you that when you receive the life of God, Jesus says you'll never die. Well, what will never die? It's not that my body will never die. All of us are going to die. Paul says the outward man is perishing. So we know that, that unless, unless we are um, alive and remain when the Lord Jesus returns, our bodies are on a path towards steady inevitable deterioration. And when you get to be at a certain age, you can see evidence of your body beginning to break down. It begins to wear out. You, we, we are aging. We are getting older. So if we are a new creation, it's not happening in the body. Well, what about the mind? Well, the mind is not going to continue forever. You're not going to think thoughts forever because the real part of you the real innermost part of who you are that lives forever, that, the Bible says, is the spirit of man. And we'll explain that as we move on. So, number one, you are a spirit. You are not a body. You are not a soul. You are more than just your mind. You are more than just your body. So you have a body. But you are not your body. You have a soul. You have a mind. 
but you are not your thoughts. You, are, you have thoughts, but you are not your thoughts. You have feelings, but you are not your feelings. You are a spirit. And it's in your spirit that the new creation happens. This is where we are born again. See, Nicodemus couldn't understand in John chapter 3. How can a man be born again when he is old? And he was looking at it from a completely physical, fleshly, natural point of view. Well, the new birth that Jesus is talking about, it's not talking about a brand new body. He's not talking about a brand new mind. You're still going to have the same thoughts, the same patterns of, of thinking, the same fears, the same doubts, the same memories. Your memories aren't changed. When you become a Christian, you still have the same experiences, the same knowledge. It's not that you forget your, your history or you forget your math or you forget your social studies or you forget you know geometry or whatever you studied. <laughs> the new creation isn't happening in your head. It's not happening in your body. It's happening in your spirit. And that's where the new birth takes place, in your spirit. So, you are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. We'll talk about all three of those, or at least focusing on spirit and soul. Because body is easy to understand. You look at your body, you see it, you feel it. If you have pain in your body, you definitely feel that. If you have pleasure in your body, you definitely feel that. So it's easy to apprehend body. We don't have to spend a lot of time talking about your body. You know what your body is. You know what your body is capable of. You know how strong or how weak your body is. You know what your body looks like. And you know if you're happy with that appearance or if you're not happy with that appearance. So we know what it means to live in a body. We also know what it means to think thoughts, to feel feelings, and to make decisions with the part of our soul that is invisible, the inward part of us. So what I'm communicating to you is the scriptural viewpoint that there is yet something that's even deeper, that God created you not just as a body, not just as a mind, but as a spirit. And so as a spiritual person, a person who has a spirit, and all of us have a spirit, by the way, it's not that you only have a mind and a body, and then when you come to the Lord, suddenly you receive the Spirit. Your spirit, your soul, and your body are with you the moment you are created. It is what gives you life. The difference is, in the spirit of a born-again person, their spirit has received the life of God. Again, where does that life go? Not into the body, not into the mind, although it can affect the mind and the body, but the life of God goes into the spirit of the one who gives their life to the Lord. So you are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. Second big idea is your spirit, not your soul, is one with God. It's your spirit, it's not your soul, that enjoys this wonderful fellowship and communion with the Lord. It is in your spirit that you are one with him. Scripture teaches he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. It doesn't say that when you're joined to the Lord, you are one body with him. It doesn't say when you are joined to the Lord, you are one mind with him. So you see, if you're looking for God to speak to you speak to you in your head, to put thoughts in your head, or if you expect God to give you feelings in your body, experiences, tingles, um, feelings of warmth or heat or, um, I don't know, different feelings and experiences in your body, and that's how you expect God to, to reveal himself to you, then you're going to be misled because it is not that your body is one with God. It's not that your mind is one with God. It is your spirit that is one with God. And this is what Jesus referred to in John 15, where he says, if you abide in me, if you live in me, I will live in you. Again, where is this union where does it take place? Where's the connection? Our bodies are not one with Christ. 
our thoughts and our mind are not one with Christ. It's not in the realm of our soul, in the realm of our thoughts, our feelings, or our emotions that we are in union with Christ. This union, just like the new creation, it's taking place in our spirit, in the innermost part of us that goes deeper than body and deeper than soul. So that brings me to the third big idea, which is this. The spirit and the soul, or let me say it like this, your spirit and your soul are distinguishable and must be divided. Now, what do I mean when I say that your spirit and soul must be divided? First, your spirit and soul are distinguishable, which means we can look at them in the in the light of scripture and we can see that your spirit is made a little bit differently from your soul and that your spirit functions in a way that God created it to function so that you could enjoy the spiritual unity with him that your soul functions completely different in a completely different manner and so since we can tell the difference between spirit and soul when we study scripture, since we can tell them apart, since they are distinguishable, it's important for us to be able to divide them in the sense that we can choose which one we're going to follow. We can live according to the spirit and deny the soul, or we can live according to the soul and deny the spirit. Now, I've already mentioned some of the advantages of walking in the Spirit, to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth, to receive this wisdom and revelation that is only revealed to those who walk in the Spirit, to be free from that life of feeling where we are up and down and all over the place depending on our circumstances or how we happen to feel at the moment, to be able to avoid deception and counterfeit, to be able to receive clear direction and guidance. These are all the advantages of walking in the Spirit, and it's actually the way God intended for us to function from the beginning. It's only when we were separated from God, when, the, when mankind was separated from God, and Adam chose to follow his soul, follow his feelings, follow his rational, logical thought. He reasoned, he said, hmm, well, this looks good for food. I don't see where it's really harmful for me to eat this fruit. And yet he was disobedient to the Lord. And so Adam's transgression, really, what was it? It was a rejection of the spiritual path and it was saying, I want to follow my own path, which is a path of feeling, a life of emotion, a life where I'm just going to think and make decisions based on logic, based on reason, based on how I feel and what makes me feel good. So the challenge for us who have been born again is to learn how to distinguish and tell the difference between our spirit and our soul so that we can divide them and we'll talk about how that happens. It's not complicated. By dividing spirit and soul, it just means that we're able to tell the difference between what is spiritual and what is soulish. What God accepts and what God does not accept. What is emanating from the new creation and what is emanating from the old creation so that we can walk worthy. We can walk in wisdom and we can walk in power. So we have said that you are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. But where is the scriptural evidence of that? Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to read verse 23. And this will be very clear that scripture regards the makeup of man as comprising of three very distinct, very distinguishable 
parts, elements, if you will. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So look at that again. He says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. So take a look at that. He didn't say, may your soul and body, or your mind and body. And he did not say, may your body, soul, and spirit. He said, may your spirit, soul, and body. So two things that we want to note here from this one passage. First, that whereas the world would say that man is made of two parts, Scripture says man is actually made up of three parts. That's why Paul prayed for them to be sanctified completely. So how is a person completely sanctified? And how do you pray for someone to be completely preserved blameless? According to Scripture, you would have to include their whole spirit and soul and body. They are unique, identifiable, they each function very differently, and so they each have their own particular needs. So, according to Scripture, it's the threefold makeup of man, the spirit, the soul, and the body. And in this teaching, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into spirit and soul and explain how it functions, how your spirit functions, how the soul functions, how they can work together, and how they can contradict one another and the conflict that results when we don't properly distinguish and divide the spirit and the soul. Now, when I say divide, all I mean is that we can tell the difference between the joy in our spirit versus the feeling, the false joy, the feeling that we get in our soul or in our emotion. I don't mean that we can ever truly separate spirit from soul, but what I mean is we can learn how the spirit functions, how the soul functions, how they cooperate with one another, and how often they fight against one another. Of course, what we want to do is cooperate with how we have been made, and that will make life a lot easier. So, Scripture establishes that to be sanctified completely and to be, be preserved blameless, it's necessary for spirit and soul and body to come into harmony. And so we don't just want to pay attention to the spirit and ignore the soul and ignore the body. But for many people, they're not even aware that they have a spirit. And so they're trying to relate to God. They're trying to worship God. They're trying to communicate and hear from God on a level of the physical or on the level of the soul or the mind, the thought, the will, and the emotion. And they never even know that they have a spirit. And so Whatever they're getting in touch with, it's not in the realm of the spiritual, it's in the realm of the soul, which opens them up to counterfeit. So, spirit, soul, and body is how Scripture delineates the threefold makeup of man. And so, you, I've, I've expressed it this way, you are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. Let's look at another example that will help us to understand how this works with an illustration. And that would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And this will help us if we have a little bit of understanding of the Old Testament and the temple. Um, we will be able to plainly see the spirit, soul, and body of each individual person that God has created, including you and including me. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. So that's a graphic illustration, isn't it? That you can be joined with someone else in one body whether it's with a harlot, 
in this example, or whether it is in the marriage, where it's another example that Paul uses of the two becoming one flesh. But, verse 17, using that as an illustration, now he wants to to use that to make a point. Verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. See, it doesn't say, and this is, I wanted to read this because I referenced it earlier, but I, I didn't give you the the number, the chapter or the verse. So here it is. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. It doesn't say that you're joined to the Lord, you are one body with him. It doesn't say you are one mind with him. But it says he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So it's in your spirit that you have the capacity to be joined, to become one, to abide in him to live in him and for him to live in you. Where is the living taking place? It's taking place in the spirit. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. In John 4, going back to that conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus says, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. It doesn't say God is a body or that God is a thought or a mind or a how do they call it? A higher consciousness. It says that God is a spirit. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the life of God comes in your spirit. It doesn't come in your head. It doesn't come in your body. It comes in your spirit. So how can we illustrate this? Scripture illustrates it for us quite easily. Verse 18 Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or, verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? So, here and elsewhere, Scripture compares us to the temple. It says, you are the temple of of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple. Now, I don't know your knowledge of the Old Testament, your knowledge of the temple in Jerusalem, but everyone reading Paul's letter would understand and would know that the temple, as well as the tabernacle that was constructed, that God gave them a pattern and said, this is how I want you to construct the tabernacle. Then they made a more a more permanent temple and constructed it based upon the plans for the tabernacle. So you may or may not be aware of the fact that the temple or the tabernacle had three primary compartments or rooms or areas. And it consisted of these three, the outer court, the inner court, and the innermost court, or the Holy of Holies. And maybe you've seen the diagram, or maybe you could look up a diagram of the temple, the floor plan of the temple or the tabernacle. And if you look at that, what you will see is a rectangular outer line that represents the outer court. Inside that rectangle is a smaller rectangle that represents the inner court. And in the very center of the inner court is a much smaller line, which would be more of a square, which represents the innermost court or the Holy of Holies. So you have these three in one. You have the outermost court or the outer court which was the, the outward portion that everyone had access to. Everyone could see. They could come in and out, and they could go into this outer court. There's the inner court that stood in between the outer court and the innermost court. So this is like the middle, and in this only the priest could go into. It wasn't available to everybody. It was more private, more secluded, more hidden from the rest. And then inside of that is a, a much smaller room referred to as the Holy of Holies, and this is where the very presence of God dwelt. So all of that gives us a great illustration of what it means to 
have a spirit, a soul, and a body. You, you are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. How does it compare? Well, the spirit, well, let's start on the outside. The body represents the outer court. Everyone can see it. Uh, people can see your body for better or for worse, right? Uh, you can see it. It's visible. It's the flesh. It's the outward appearance. Inside, that no one else sees, but a select few, and in this case only you, and only those with whom you open up and share, you have the inner court represented by the soul. It's your thoughts, it's your mind, it's, it's your, your rational thinking process that's represented by the inner court. And then within that, deep in the deepest part that no one sees, is the Holy of Holies, and that represents your spirit. And it's there in the spirit that the spirit of God dwells, just like it dwelled, he dwelled in the temple and in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. So when Paul says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He did that very intentionally. And he wanted us to understand that just as the temple had an outer court, an inner court, and then a holy of holies, so do we. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this helps to better appreciate why, for us, we're not concerned with do we, where do we worship God? Is it Do we worship Him in this mountain or in Jerusalem? Do we worship Him in a home meeting or do we worship Him in a church meeting someplace? The issue is irrelevant to those who have been born of the Spirit because now, Paul says, it's not a matter of worshiping God in a certain geographic location. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which means God meets with you in the innermost part of who you are. That's where you worship God. That is worshiping God in spirit and in truth.